Good morning. Good afternoon. Good night. I'm Tiff. I'm Tim. And this is Tiff and Tim and True Crime. This is where two friends meet True Crime. Yes. That's on period. Yes. How you feeling? I'm feeling good. Period. We are okay. Shake them <laughs> girls. Wait. Shake my A cup. Period. No, no. <laughs> um. We are bringing you this podcast because if you're like us, you love true crime. And if you don't, you can learn to love it. Um, we've been talking about true crime for, I think, since we met each other. Right. <laughs> and we that's been, what, crime. about, what, four years now? Yes. So ever since then, we've just been talking about true crime. I am obsessed with true crime. Anything Same. mystery, murder, serial killers. Cults. I, all of that. We, that's, that's us. And so that's what we're going to bring you, actually. That's what this podcast is going to be centered around. Yeah. Um, we're super excited that, you know, you all are joining us right now. If you're listening, thank you. If you're watching, what's up? <laughs> so um, most of our cases are going to be, you know, pretty interactive. It's going to be basically me and Tiffany having a conversation with each other and telling each other about, you know, the research that we found about the cases. Yep. Um, and today is going to be a great case. Yay. You ready? Yes, let's get started. Okay, period. Um, let's get it going. All right. Getting lit on a summer night is what a normal person would say is a turn up. Yes. We finna drink. We finna hookah. We finna chill. We finna do all of that and maybe throw a little something, something. <laughs> Never know. Period. But for 20-year-old Karina Homer... Her evening of fun turned into an evening of tragedy, y'all. This case today will be about a young woman who had, I would say, a lot of dreams and aspirations in her life. What were yours? Mine was to become a lawyer, ironically, and look at me now, but I'm not that today. I'm not that today. Period. Mine was to be a stripper. (laughs) Mm, Bands. No, I'm just playing. (laughs) No, but mine was to be a teacher, and so look at me now. And so, um, but, you know, we'll never know what Karina's dreams were because they were cut short, literally. And I do mean they were literally cut short. So, one night of going out with her friends, turning up for her, you know, we'll never know what her shoulda, coulda, wouldas were going to be. And this is why I say you should always be aware of the people you surround yourself with and the people you bring in your space. Yes. Um, but sit back, stay tuned, because it's about to be a what if? A bond with this case. Period. <laughs> we'll get sound effects later. Karina <laughs> <laughs> Homer was a young Swedish woman from Skillingary, which is about 150 miles from Stockholm. Growing up, she was a part of the Pony Club member. Don't do that. She was not a part of that pony club. Okay. okay. But it's equivalent to Girl Scout. Okay. Her father also stated that she loved animals. She was a good student and she loved to travel. Yes. That love for travel one day sent her to the U.S. where she won $1,500 from a lottery ticket. Dang. Yes. That's a lot of money back then. That is a lot of money. Dance will make her dance. Yes. <laughs> so she decides to take those winnings and book a trip, book a trip to Boston which is a destination where she linked up with an agency called Tage Sudan, which is an agency is no longer in service right now, but it was an agency to help pair Sweden individuals with families on pair. 
An au pair is someone who does services for families, such as take care of the kids or house cleaning, exchange for room and board in the U.S. So a maid. She was a nanny. Okay, a nanny. So she came over <laughs> to Boston in March of 1996. The agency paired her with a family in Dover, Massachusetts. The family included Frank Rapp, who was a commercial photographer, a woman named Susan Nitcher, who was a painter, and their two children. She played sports with the kids, read them bedtime stories. She was described as the perfect playmate and caregiver for the children. Yes. With her sunny personality and kind nature, she seemed like a perfect fit for the family. She took on the role really well, but after a week of working with the family, she would start spending weekends exploring Boston and seeing what the U.S. had to offer. She also partied with other umpires from the agency that she worked at. She also did a little bit of dating. She dated a guy from South Boston. And she also dated a police officer as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Red flag. <laughs> red flag. <laughs> Karina had been in the U.S. long when she started writing back to her family saying that she was tired of cleaning and taking care of the kids all the time. And this trip to the U.S. was not one that she had pictured at all to be. Karina even wrote letters to a friend named Charlotte Sandberg and had even told her that she was making arrangements to come back home in August. She had only been there since March. So, Dang. yeah, very what? short trip. Hmm. She said she was feeling homesick and that she no longer wanted to live the life of an aunt pair. Frank noticed that Karina was going out a lot. And remember, Frank is her boss. So he allowed her to spend time at his studio in Boston because she was going out on the weekend. This um, studio was actually in South Boston, which is not, I think, not that far from downtown Boston. Hmm. Okay, then. Yeah. Well, according to a few witnesses, on June 21st of 1996, Karina and her friends met at that loft. Ooh, to pregame? And did oh, okay. on Friday night. And headed out to celebrate the summer solstice. Okay. Um, the bars was filled as usual. The favorite nightclub of Karina and her friends was called the Zanzibar Nightclub. And it okay. was <laughs> jumping. Okay. okay. And at, at that time, Karina was not 20 years old. She was 20 years old. She wasn't 21 yet. Yeah, and they already know where this is going. She had to use a fake ID. Don't act like y'all wasn't trying to use fake IDs right. to get up in the club. <laughs> and was. <laughs> But um, some of the eyewitnesses also said that she was passed out in the bathroom. And they also said that a doorman said that she had to leave. What? Yes, girl. They also said that she was seen outside of an intersection of Bolston and Treymount. Okay. A little later on. Probably sometime around like 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, she was out late. She was. <laughs> But before I go even deeper, my question is, like, where are her friends? No, for real. Cause my like, friends leave me at 3 o'clock in the morning. We're not real friends. We not. And when I find you, it's me and you. I was like. I, no questions asked. And so um, they also stated that she was talking inside. But whether she was left alone is totally an assumption that people made. They don't necessarily know if she was or if she wasn't. One source said that, you know... But we do know that she was in the Zanzibar with friends and was seen with some man. A man? Yeah. They didn't say what man. Some man. So in the early morning hours of Saturday, June 22nd, Karina exited that club, right? Alone into an alley. 
outside. Yeah. She tried to re-enter the club, but how you going to hate when you can't even get back in? Yeah. Ah! But to look for her friends, but it was past closing time, so she was just not allowed to go back in. And you know, once the club closed, like you can't come back in here now. But she was seen talking and singing to a homeless man in the alley. Huh? His name was Jay Polo. Oh. I probably talked to somebody named Jay Polo too, honestly. He was interviewed by the police and said, and he said uh, that, you know, he was not a person of interest. And also the police said he wasn't as well. Um, there was a man also seen in the alley with a large dog, a white great peonies dog. Both of them had Superman shirts on. Mm-hmm. And this man's name was Mr. Wheaton. Okay. Uh, another man said that he witnessed or seen her on Bolson Street talking to four gentlemen in a silver car, possibly a Mitsubishi, trying to convince her to go to an after-hours party. Like, this another spot for us to go to. Witnesses also said she was seen in a car on Boston Street, but I cannot find a description of this car. Mm. I can't find, like, what it looked like or anything. Yeah. They just said it was silver and it had four men in it. Another witness said that she was seen walking up Tremont Street, the section between Boston and Park Street. This is the northeast of the alley. So... Mm. The alley where, you know, they had seen her at first, this northeast of that. Witnesses also said she was seen around 3 a.m. Remember, she 3 a.m., she was walking away from the alley with a man and some light-colored dog. Um, the man is described to be a construction worker type. What is that even? I guess he hard hat. He boots on with a vest. Like, what Girl, is that I don't even? know. He was in his 40s and he had about wavy, curly, grayish hair. Mm-hmm. On Sunday, though... June 23rd, my birthday, over 30 hours after she had last been seen, the top half of Karina's body was found by a homeless man in a dumpster behind 1091 Bolson Street. Hmm. I think this dumpster is about a mile or so from the Zanzibar nightclub. Now, I'm pretty sure you're going to ask me, was this the man, the homeless man that she was talking to? And it was. This is the man that they they saw and found. Um, she was in black, she was in a black garbage bag and police said she was sawed at the waist and was strangled with a rope. Did they ever find the other half? To this day, they have never found that part, that the other part of her body. Yes. Her body was cleaned and her makeup was removed. So like who had enough time to be able to do that? And nobody see her. Right. Um, they did not say if she had clothes on or if she didn't have clothes on. Um, and another tantalizing clue, a letter written by Karina to a friend named Yorka Sevinson, please don't send for me, <laughs> at home in Sweden just a few weeks before her death pointed towards things not going as good as she had expected in the U.S. She wrote that something terrible had happened and that was that she was stressed all the time, although she did not reveal what this was because Nobody would know because nobody ever, you know, she was never alive again after that. That is crazy. And another crazy thing is they didn't find any evidence at the scene. The only thing that they were able to find was a partial fingerprint. And when they put that fingerprint in the systems, it was not matched to anyone in their system. Dang. I know. Hundreds of tips had poured poured in, but nothing came from those. The, the Boston Police Department didn't investigate every single piece of evidence. They also had over 300 suspects, and they searched over countless apartments and houses within the area that she was 
party and or where the body was found. They also even checked large bodies of water to see if they could find the other half of the body. But like Tim stated, they never found that other half. That's crazy. But you would think that, you know, since this is a open case still, because they don't have a, a suspect yet or I guess a killer yet. Um, they could, you know, open back, open it back up and look in codes to be able to right, see, like, exactly. okay, you got a lot of time has passed. Yeah. So that person may have committed a crime by now. They could have, or they could be dead too. So, yeah. you know, but they, even if they're dead and they did the crime, their fingerprints should still show up in the system. True. Cause it's 2023. I know now we have modern technology now should be able to help us be able to, yes. you know, figure out what's going on. Um, so, also, when they were, like, checking for the body, did they check, like, a surrounding everything or anything? No, they just... Yeah, they checked the surrounding area and everything. And still didn't find nothing. Nothing. Dang. Yeah. Well, you know, within checking, there are also a few suspects that they had in mind. Yeah. And let me tell you about these two dudes that I, that I researched. So, it was okay. a man... Who saw Karina sitting in a silver car? Remember I told you about that? Yes. And the two men shortly before she said he was she was with two men shortly before she vanished. He said he had tried to get her to go home with her friends after he found them. So my thing is, like I asked you before, first of all, where were they? No, for real. And second of all, why were you looking for her friends? So, to me, it just seems like, you know, where did that part of the story come from? Right. And How do you know her friend? Exactly. Questions that need mm-hmm. answers. Mm. But, you know, he said that he was threatened by these unidentified strangers. Um, and they basically were saying, we're going to kill you if you don't back up away from the car. That Karina was already inside Not of. Kill. Yes, like, they was going to get rid of him. Nah, yeah, I probably would have been like, all right, hey, I'll, you know what? I probably, I don't want no trouble. <laughs> Look, I'm just trying to help a girl out. I probably would have been too, like, mm, okay, I'm gonna let y'all do what y'all doing, Ooh, right. but I'm still finna call the police because right. exactly. this is weird. Mm-hmm. And if I found the people that you were looking for, then okay, so let's let's get to them, right? But um, then there was another guy named John Zewitz, mm. fancy name, right? Right. <laughs> John Zewitz was an industrial music musician, and he was also considered to be a suspect. Um, John lived not far from Karina's body where it was found at the time either. Mm. Also at the time of the murder, during you know, the investigation, John was a heroin addict, and it was getting worse and worse and worse as you know, the days progressed. Oh, my God. Um, he also was in a band. Where they did music, they did performances okay. and everything. And he also performed at the um, Zinzenberg nightclub, Zinzabar. Huh. And the name, guess what the name was, girl? What? Sleep Chamber. <laughs> Not Sleep Chamber of all names. Yes. So the band actually was in a lot of controversy because, you know, they the songs and music that they were doing mm-hmm. was like S&M and Bondage. So, touch me, squeezy, spank me. That's what it was giving. <laughs> okay. So, but even with all that being said, no charges in the murder of Karina Homer were ever brought to this man. Mm. Um, and lastly, the next person that I saw was a suspect was Eugene McCollum. Mm-hmm. He murdered and decapitated a sex worker and a man in 2000. So not only a what? sex worker, 
but a man as well in 2000. Um, police linked him to Karina's death, but they never, you know, passed up anything else because eventually he ended up, you know, killing himself. So, you know, we'll never know anything about right. that or what happened. But he was never charged with those two deaths because, well, with Karina's death, he was charged with the other two, but not Karina's. Got it. But, yeah, that those those some crazy gentlemen. Let me tell you about these other ones. So the next one is Herb Whitten. And he was the 48-year-old man from Andover. And he was the one that Tim mentioned earlier who would go out into downtown Boston and walk his dog with a matching Superman shirt. Nothing weird about that. <laughs> when it was a, uh, arrested by police the day after Karina's body was found because he was speeding away the day in question and he received a speeding ticket. What was he speeding for? You know, telling him trying to get away from the crime scene. You right. But You're right. a year later, he actually committed suicide. Oh no. Suspicious. Mm. Yes. Next is a Fort Lauderdale serial killer. This serial killer was from Fort Lauderdale who was killing women with blonde hair. And he will actually saw them at the waist. Yes, and he will actually dump their bodies away as well, but nothing came about that oh, because dang. it seemed like the MO and the, the ways that the killings were completely different. Mm. Yes. It's a given he could have did it, though. Nah, for real. And <laughs> lastly is Frank Rapp. Remember, Karina's boss. He was actually the main and number one suspect of this case. Of course. He actually told Boston Globe that he was definitely not a suspect and his family was completely devastated that Karina had died. Even the weekend in question that Karina had died in 1996, the couple was actually in New York visiting Frank's parents. And witnesses say that they he was with the parents and the family the entire weekend. He never left, so right. they say. When the family came back and heard on the news that an identified blonde woman had been killed, they called the police immediately knowing that that might be Karina. When the police arrived to their residency, a trash bag, not a trash bag, a trash can was on fire and it was lit. They were able to take those remains uh, in the trash to see if it had anything to do with Karina and there was nothing found. In addition to that, Frank and his wife were very hostile towards, towards the police, even though they were the ones that called. What did they think the police were going to come? I don't know. <laughs> like that's crazy the fact that they being that suspicious like exactly why were you burning things exactly. like hmm i have a few theories about them okay and my first theory that i did my research on that i saw that many people thought was that um karina's body was cut in half and her lower half was hidden to conceal the fact that she had been sexually assaulted and so, you know, you know, with that being said, the killer, you know, will you'll never know because they that other part of the body, there's no semen, there's no blood, right. there's no nothing to yep. say that they're, you know, they were there basically. Right. So um another one is basically that Karina did have time to possibly make it back to that loft. Mm. And she was only to be met by the owner, y'all. So, Mr. Frank. Frank, yes. Mm. And y'all know that's his, her employer. And so, you know, would she have walked all the way there? 
Or would she have grabbed a cab back there? Right. Um, we'll never know because she does not show up anywhere on any cameras at all. And you know this wouldn't be true crime if the cameras did not work. Right. Because <laughs> for some odd reason, they never worked. They never worked. Um, one of my own theories like while doing this research was I believe that Mr. Frank did do it. I think he did it because I also saw that you know she may or may not have been pregnant. And he could have been the one who got her pregnant and was trying to hide the Hell fact no. that she was pregnant. Mm. Yes. And also the fact that she had some terrible news to tell her friend. Right. Like, we got to go back to that because. What was the news? Exactly. And why were you so pressed to go back home? Exactly. And then I also think, like, do we for sure know that he actually went back home with his wife? and kids or if he did go back home did he come back by himself because that's more than enough time to drive from new york to boston like so he had enough time to do whatever it is that he needed to do and actually doing some more research i did see that the police detectives did go inside that loft but ask me did they do a thorough job of investigating it of course not they did not search the tub. They didn't search the bathroom. They didn't search anything. They didn't do any aluminol for blood. They didn't do any of that. So who knows? I mean, they could have. And the last theory is that since he owned it, he could have hooked up with other workers that could have been in the uh, I did hear agency. That some of the workers, previous nannies, actually said that Frank was not really appropriate with them at times so mm. that could have happened though honestly i mean i feel like it all boils down to frank honestly and also if you're following along you should also see that there was some type of research done to go back to the wife's paintings yes to her paintings were kind of depicting her I guess being remorseful for what happened and kind of yes. showing that what happened in her paintings. Yes. You gotta gotta read between the lines almost in the paintings, but you can kind of see it though in our understandings. And yes. you you'll be able to see them too on if you're watching on YouTube. On YouTube, you should be able to see them. And if you're listening as well, they'll be down in the description for you to see. Yes. Um, and you can make your own judgment on it. Pretty creepy. They are pretty creepy. They are. When um, you sent them to me, I was like, wait, what? Right. And I was like, uh-uh, what was she thinking? And I understand artists have, like, dark. Right. But some of them are very eerie, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if there's any other information that, you know, you all know or may know, um, please contact Boston Police Department, um, the Homicide Unit at 617-343-4470. Um, any information also going to be left anonymously by Crime Stoppers tip line at 1-800-494-TIPS. Or modern day, you can also text the word TIP to CRIME, 27463. But, you know, make sure y'all subscribe, like, follow, quick, fast, and in a hurry. That's it for today's case. I'm Tim. I'm Tiff. And this is True Crime with Tiff. It's him. Yes. Also, just to, you know, plug this in there, 
please be on the lookout for further podcasts that we'll be dropping on normally on Tuesday and Thursdays. Yes. You can also follow us on our social media handles at Tiff, Tim, and True Crime on Instagram. And it's the same thing on TikTok as well. Yep. And YouTube. All right. Y'all have a wonderful night. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I, didn't, good. I didn't cancel it in time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>